Well, I hope that you've had a wonderful weekend. Maybe you've got friends or family or loved one in town. We've We've got our daughter Gracie and our son-in-law JT in town with us. It's been really a, a marvelous time for us. If you are a visitor in this class, and I just met Tim from Germany uh, who's visiting uh, this class, if you all want to say hello to him. Um, if you're visiting, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing. We're taking the Bible, and through the pulpit, they're preaching through John, Acts, and Revelation. And during the, the Sunday school time or the Bible class time or the life group time or whatever we call this <laughs> uh, small group fellowship we're in right now, during that time, we're looking at contextual scriptures to, to go deeper into a little bit about what's going on in Acts. Now, the way this has unfolded, we're running a little bit ahead of the pulpit. And so they were in Acts 4 today, but we're still in Acts 6 and 7. And they'll be catching up pretty soon. And by the time we get to Revelation, we ought to be pretty much in sync. So with that, I want you to go back in time with me to... to we're going to do this in two stages. <clears throat> One of the hardest things for a human being to do is to live outside of themselves. We just have a tendency to see things through the glasses we wear. And these are my glasses. And I can put on my glasses and, and I know many of y'all, but I know myself more than I know you. I know what time I woke up this morning because I was there. I know what I ate for breakfast because I tasted it. I know what I've done so far today, and I know what's on my schedule to do for the rest of today. I know what's expected of me, by and large, at work. I know what's expected for me at home. Our daughter Gracie proudly showed me a picture of something in her home. She did this big, elaborate cleaning list of things that are cleaned daily, things that are cleaned weekly, and things that are cleaned seasonally. She showed it to me and I said, honey, how long did it take you to put together this list? At which point JT said, just long enough for me to do everything that was on the list. <laughs> They've got a marriage on the right track. But I know what I'm doing because I'm me. Now here's the problem. You're you. And you have a tendency, just like I do, to see everything through your own lens, through your own experiences. How many of you were alive 2,000 years ago? Okay, my older sister, anybody else? <laughs> I will pay for that at lunch. Um, you just weren't. And because of that, it's really hard for us to get into the mindset that was there 2,000 years ago. But I want us to, and then I want us to not only get into the mindset from 2,000 years ago, we're going to jump back another 1,000 years almost on top of that. Because our scriptures that we're reading today were written then. And so we can best understand what was going on if our brains can go back in time as best as possible. And then we can best apply it to us today. So that's what I want us to do. And we're at the time where Stephen in Acts 6 
Stephen is a man of God. The church is very young. Stephen is one of the deacons who's serving in the church. And Stephen, by the power of God, is doing mighty signs and wonders. Stephen's also involved in dialogue with various Jewish groups, trying to convince and persuade them that Jesus is Messiah. And some of the people in dialogue with Stephen can't answer Stephen's logic, Stephen's explanations, Stephen's use of Scripture. Some who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So since they couldn't stand up against him, they were embarrassed, they were humiliated, they were shamed, and they just decided to try and destroy Stephen. If you can't fight the logic, if you can't fight the wisdom, then try to attack the person. That's so old and common that there's actually a Latin phrase for it. Argumentum ad hominem. When someone's got the presentation and the wisdom and, and the spirit and you can't fuss with it, you, 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 you lose to it, then you just resort to things like, well, he's an idiot. Well, yes, but deal with my arguments. I'm not going to deal with your arguments. You're an idiot. You're a liar. I don't believe you. Blah, blah, blah. That, that, that's what was happening here. Except instead of just calling Stephen an idiot, they get him arrested. And they say in the the charges, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Now, if you're like most of us, that may be something that's said in the temple, but we live in America. We live where there's freedom of speech. This is the 4th of July weekend. I may not agree with what someone says, but I'll fight for their opportunity to say it. Because this is our country. I believe fervently that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I've got some friends who believe fervently that He isn't. And I believe they have the right to say what they believe, just as I have the right to say what I believe. I also believe truth will out. And when we stand in front of Jesus on that judgment day, they'll see I was right. (laughs) But in the meantime, one of the ways that they might be persuaded is by the fact that we both have a chance to air what we believe. But that concept of freedom of speech is one that's come to us through the gracious foresight of our founding fathers and actually based upon scriptural concepts that Jesus is the truth and the truth will set you free and everyone should have a right to pursue that. 
But it wasn't always that way. So Stephen gets arrested and look at what it is. He's arrested for speaking against this holy place. Like that was some major crime to speak out against the temple. And the, the, the indictment specifically continues. We heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. Now you got to transport yourself mentally. You're in the temple. The Sanhedrin, the ruling council is gathered together. Stephen is hauled in. You're just a fly on the wall. You're just watching. Stephen gets hauled in on the charges that he's spoken against this holy place, this temple. And specifically said that that Stephen was saying Jesus of Nazareth will this Nazareth will destroy this place. And that's the indictment. And that's a sufficient indictment to cause the Sanhedrin to say to Stephen, is this true? Defend yourself. Now, there's part of us today that would just say, yeah, it's true, big deal. It's what I believe. But that would get Stephen killed. Now, Stephen doesn't back away from it, but Stephen takes a step back and gets a running start. And Stephen begins to try and teach them. Now, if you go to Israel today, you'll go to Jerusalem, and you'll go to this wall. Anybody ever been there? A lot of you have. You recognize that. Maybe if you haven't been there, you'll still recognize it. That's the Western Wall. It's also called the Wailing Wall. You can go there and find little notes of papers that, 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 that people have, have written prayers on and they've shoved them in the cracks and the crevices. And you can go there and see people who, who will just in devotion, uh, take themselves and just, you know, hitting their heads against the wall, repeatedly be praying to God for help. It's one of the most holy places in the world. Why? It wasn't really technically part of the temple, but it was part of the retaining wall that had been built for the courtyards and expanded, started the expansion started by Herod a couple of decades before Christ was born. But it was, it continued on throughout the, the time that Jesus was alive. They were continuing the work on it. That part of the, the wall is all that's left. It's part of the western wall of the temple courts, the retaining wall for the temple courts. This is the temple proper in the picture that I've got up on the PowerPoint. So this isn't the temple itself, but it's part of the wall that had the courts that surrounded the temple. And as such, it is still deemed such a holy place that you go to it morning, noon, or night, you will find devoted people praying to God, wedging little prayers in sheets of papers, dressed appropriately for the prayer. Oh, you'll find the tourists gawking as well. You'll find the curious watching. But you will find devoted people thinking that this is a very special holy place called to prayer. Now, what is it about this? That's so holy and special. This is the temple in the middle of the courts. 
that Stephen supposedly was being, uh, 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 had supposedly spoken against. This is the one that Jesus did say he would destroy and in three days rebuild. I want us to take a step back and look at the whole concept of temples in the Bible. But not just in the Bible, I want us to look culturally. So now we're going to jump back from 2,000 years ago and go back about 3,000 years ago. How many of you are people? Okay, we got a couple of lawyers in here. Everybody else is a person. I'm I'm absolutely convinced that all of us were made to fellowship with God. And so there is within all of us this longing for a relationship and for understanding. Both to be understood and to understand. And so historically... God has revealed himself in different ways. He's revealed himself in the universe. That's a revelation or a revealing of God within us. He's revealed himself in scripture. He's revealed himself in holy writings. He's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. But because all of us have this, we were made to, to be in a relationship with God, all of us have this tendency to be seeking God. Some people resolve to think that God's nothing more than an academic exercise. And so their God becomes their mind or becomes science. Some people, their God becomes their appetite. And God is nothing more than an attempt to to pleasure ourselves. But we're looking for something. And the history of man and religion is outside of biblical revelation. By and large... Human beings tried to make God into what people perceived God should be. So, for example, here's the temple of Isis at Philae. This is an Egyptian temple that was built so Isis would have a home. Because gods need homes. Where else are they going to live? And that may strike you as odd because you're living after 2,000 years of revelation from the life of Jesus Christ. And over a 1,000 years of revelation before the life of Christ. But you take away from the revelation and you've got a bunch of Egyptians or you've got a bunch of Mesopotamians or you've got a bunch of Greeks or you've got a bunch of Romans who are thinking we got to build a house for the God or the God or goddess won't be around here. And so they would find a holy or a special place. Oftentimes it was on a hill. Do you know why it would be on a hill? Because God's in heaven, right? It's a shorter trip. He's more likely to come visit. But you got to have a house for him. You can go back in the old ziggurats, those pyramids with the steps on them in modern day Iraq. And this whole idea is that the gods would come down. And that's their house. 
That's where they lived. That's where they reigned. And if you want something from the gods, you go over to their house and you ask them. And if the gods are upset, you go over to their house and you try to appease them. Because the gods are finite gods. They're more like superhumans. Frankly, those gods would have made good comic book characters. In fact, Thor, the thunder god, did. Because all those gods are, they've got human emotions, they've got human shortcomings, they're just more powerful than humans, but they need a house to live in. That is the thought outside of Israel by all of its neighbors. That's the thought in Egypt. That's what the temple of Isis was. It was a home. You go over to Athens in Greece, up on the Acropolis. The Acropolis is the city on high. It's the the, the town that's built up on the hill. And those are the temples. To Nike Athena. Those are the temples. You go to Ephesus and up on the hilltop, not down in the city, up on the hilltop is where the, the great temple was. Because it was deemed that this was, the God had marked this out as holy territory. So this is where you built the house for the God. That's where he wanted to live. And that's what you have. Now Stephen is being accused of saying Jesus is going to destroy the temple. And if you've got the pagan thought that the temple is the house of God, where God lives, where God comes to visit his people, where you make God happy, if you've got a, a, an insufficient view of God such that God is not what you've learned of your revelation of him, but rather what you're creating him to be out of your own mind, then you got trouble. I mean, how many of you want to tick off a God? How many of you want to go destroy his house? How's he supposed to visit? How's he supposed to hear your prayers except your sacrifices? You know, the, the, the gods that were the pagan gods, the little G gods, outside of Israel and, and what God had divinely revealed to his people, those gods would get hungry. They would, you, you know, there's, if you, if you keep up with the, what's written up in the news, about every year or two, someone will write some news article about, there's this, the Noah flood has been rediscovered, and now we know the truth about it. And uh, it's generally a new write-up on the Epic of Gilgamesh, one of the tablets of a flood story that were told by the neighbors of Israel. We've got tablets that date from the time of Abraham, 2000 B.C., that tell this story. But the story's very revealing, not so much for the flood account, but for what it teaches about the ideas of gods. When, when, when the gods basically wipe out the earth, say for Utnapushtim and his family, Utnapushtim, after the waters recede, he has to sacrifice immediately. 
not in the sense that that Noah, Noah, yes, it's Noah. So I get him confused with Jonah. You know, I've got that problem. I'm dyslexic on the water guys in the Old Testament. Um, Noah, not in the sense that Noah did out of appreciation, respect, and homage to God, but Utnapushtim has to sacrifice to the gods because the gods got hungry while the people were getting wiped out. And they needed the food. Now, how do you get food to a god? Well, you kill it, and then you burn it. Have you ever noticed when you burn food, which I do all the time when Becky's gone, have you ever noticed when you burn food that the food kind of shrivels up? And then that part that shriveled up, if you don't know science, must be the part that's going up in smoke. And that's what the gods are eating. So this is the mentality. Now the Israelites should have known better. And that's something that that Stephen wants to make very clear. Stephen is not stripping people. Jesus did not strip people of a relationship with God by destroying the temple. That's why Jesus said he wouldn't only destroy it, he would rebuild it in three days. Because the relationship with God was never based on a place. A true understanding. We don't worship a limited God who's got to either be here or be there. The biblical truth is that God is infinite. That's one of the stark differences that the Israelites should have maintained from the revelation God gave them in the Old Testament. Yet they just seem to wander back and forth in that. So Stephen goes back, and so in Acts 7, 46 through 50, Stephen says the following. Stephen, in his defense, has been working up to this point. And when he got up to this point, he says to the people, he says, our fathers, and he's talking about the, the, the Israel, uh, in the nation of Israel, the, the place, the people. He says, our fathers brought it, this is the tent in the wilderness, in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the day of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place. For God. Was he looking for a home for God? A place that God could call home so that God had a dwelling place for his people. Not in the sense of the pagans. Look what was said. It was Solomon who built a house for him. The, he, the Greek word house, oikos, is also a word. There are three words in the Greek, but it's a word that was used for a temple as well. Yet, Stephen doesn't want there to be any mistake here. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, this is an Old Testament teaching. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house are you going to build for me? What kind of place for my rest? Didn't I make the entire earth? 
I mean, I made everything. I made the cedar trees you're using to line your closets and my house. Do you really think I need you to build me someplace to dwell? You see, the other gods in the other creation stories, they didn't really even, they got wiped out. They got tired creating the earth. They needed, they, they made man to finish up the job. Because the gods just were too tired. I mean, they dug the oceans. They built the mountains, piled up the, water, the, the dirt for the mountains. They dug some of the rivers. And then it was kind of like, man, I'm getting worn out. Let's make some people and get them to do this for us. Those are the stories you get outside the Bible. So, within the context of this, what I gave us is, I said, let's go back and read what Solomon did when he built the temple. So, we had 1 Kings 5 through 11. Uh, uh, 1 Kings chapter 5 through chapter 11. And I want to pull out a couple of those verses for you to look at this morning. I want us to start with 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt... In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Now you see this, Lord. I've, I've circled it. I'm going to highlight it for you. Really big. Now you've heard me speak on this before, but I want to make sure we're all really, really clear because it becomes very important in this lesson. Lord, what's unusual about the way it's written compared to all the other words around it? It's all capitals in an uppercase, I mean all uppercase, in a large font L followed by smaller font, O-R-D. But it's all capitals. You don't have all capitals in month. Whoops. You don't have all capitals in he began or the. The reason why is that's the way the translators are telling us that this is the word Yahweh. Now, all of us have heard, or I suspect most of us, have heard the word Yahweh. I plug it into lessons periodically just to keep you awake, see if you're reading them. Yahweh. Sometimes I'll be up here and I'll pronounce it Yahweh. Sometimes if you use a King James Bible, it'll call it not upper and lowercase Lord, but the King James translates that Jehovah. Now, I think it's useful for us to know a little bit about why. But in the process, if the Western Wailing Wall is one of the most holy places in Jewish tradition, certainly, on earth still today, Yahweh is probably the most holy word. I'd take probably out of that sentence. I'd challenge someone to find me a more holy word to a practicing Jew than Yahweh. In fact, a practicing Jew won't pronounce it. There are many Jews who will write God like this. G-D. See, Yahweh or Yahweh doesn't have any vowels to it. 
Hebrew itself doesn't have, they've got some vowel sounds sort of in, in their language. They've got some letters that take vowel sounds, but, but the real vowel sounds were not in the original Hebrew language. They were added by Hebrew scholars called Masoretes in the Middle Ages with the hope that people would not forget how to pronounce Hebrew. But when those Hebrew scholars came to this word Yahweh, no vowels were added. And the reason why is because you weren't even supposed to say the word. The word's too holy to be said. No good Jew should be saying it. And you ought to be careful before you write it. If you go back to the PowerPoint for a moment, um, I'm going to jump ahead a couple of slides here. But on the PowerPoint, this is a picture of a Dead Sea Scroll. It's called the Habakkuk Pesher, which Pesher means commentary. It's a commentary on Habakkuk. I have circled there three places where Yahweh was written. Now, as a Dead Sea Scroll, you, you can remember that these scrolls are written about the time of Jesus. Some of them 100 or 50, 100, 150 years before Jesus. Some of them 100 years after Jesus or 50 years after Jesus. But generally, if you say this is contemporary with Jesus, it is. Or maybe it's a little bit earlier. This is all written, this entire Pesher is written in a, in a Hebrew language. But the letters are letters that the Jews adopted during the Babylonian captivity. They're from a language, they're, they're Aramaic letters. Except for Yahweh. And where the, the Jewish scribe wrote Yahweh, you can see if you're careful, and if you want to get on the internet or some other place, you can go look these up. But Yahweh was written in what's called Paleo-Hebrew. It's written in an old Hebrew script that predated the Babylonian captivity. In other words, when the scribe's writing his commentary on Habakkuk and he gets to the name of the Lord, uh, to Yahweh, he won't even write it in their normal writing script. Here's one for you. Look at this. This is a Dead Sea Scroll. You may not know this, but some of the Dead Sea Scrolls are in Greek. This is a Greek Dead Sea Scroll. And anybody who is in a fraternity or a sorority is going to pick up the Kappa and the Delta and the Tau. And you can pick up a number of these Greek letters. There's an L-O-G-O-S. There's Logos right there. But look next to it or look at where I've put the little blinker here on the third line from the bottom in the middle. Those aren't Greek letters. It's Paleo-Hebrew. It's the name of God. It's the four letters that form the name of God. Because not even... When writing it in Greek, would someone write the name of God? They're going to use something to show it's so holy, so special, so important. Now, if we go back to the PowerPoint, I mean to the uh, Elmo for a moment. You may be sitting there thinking, well then, why do we get Jehovah out of Yahweh? Well, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it's actually kind of interesting. If you were to write Yahweh in the Hebrew, if you were reading the Hebrew, you would have a Yod. And I'm sorry, I write a Hebrew script in, instead of what, but it'd be yod Hey vav Hey. Whoops, there we go. yod Hey vav Hey. The Yod is the Y sound. 
But in English, Y and J historically come from the same letter. It actually, in our alphabet, the, the J comes from the letter I. And if you're writing an I in script, an I looks like that. If you're writing a J, it's the same I, it's just got a little tail on it. Because J's were originally used in place of an I at the end of Roman numerals, certain Roman numerals. So J doesn't become a distinctive letter with our pronunciation until after the King James Bible. 1633 seems to be when the first English work that pronounces a J like we do, a J sound. Before that, it was just an I sound. Yah, yah. An I at the beginning of the word is yah, unless it's, anyway. So generally, the I's are done with either a Y or a J, depending upon who's doing the transcribing. Yah, yah. And so the King James does it as a J. And then that next letter is an H. The next letter is a V, but the Germans do V's as W's. So, in English, Yahweh is Yahweh. In German, it would be Yahweh. Now, we don't know what the vowels are. So, the King James throws some vowels in there. Jehovah. We pronounce it Jehovah because that's the way we're reading it and the way we pronounce those letters today. Back in King James times, though, it wouldn't have been. It would have been much more of a Yahweh, which sounds a lot like Yahweh. Maybe. All right, so you've got this very holy name. Here is now, we're back at the text. Solomon is going to build the house, the bait, the house of Yahweh. What does that mean? Is it a house where Yahweh is going to live? Is it his second home? A vacation home for Yahweh when he wants to get away from heaven during the dry summer season. No. No. In Jewish property law, if I've got a house I'm selling to Mark Wilkie, in Jewish property law, right now, today, our law, we draw up a deed, we'd execute the deed, we'd go file it down at the courthouse. Part of old Jewish law, what they would do is, Mark and I would go out publicly and I would declare this house that I've sold to Mark Wilkie. This is the house of Mark Wilkie instead of Mark Lanier. And by making that declaration, it's a declaration that Mark Wilkie owns the house, whether he lives there or not. Now, most people live in the house they own, but not everybody. It's a declaration of ownership. And so what we have here, he begins to build the house of the Lord, not a place for God to dwell. Look at it in 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings 8, 27. This is Solomon. After he's built the house, he's got a prayer of dedication. He stands before the altar in the presence of the assembly, the altar of Yahweh. Now, I left this out 
but Yahweh, that very special word for God. When Moses goes before God on the burning bush on Sinai, Moses says, I'll go, but you got to tell me who's, who you are. God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your forefathers, the God of your people. The word that God's using there isn't Yahweh. He's just using Elohim, which is could be a big G God, could be a little G God. It's the common word for God used by anybody back in those days. And so Moses says, okay, so you're God, who's God of my fathers, forefathers, whatever. I need to know your name. They're going to ask me your name. Are you uh, uh, Isis? Are you Ray? Are you, what's the, what's your name? God says, my name is Yahweh. We don't know how he pronounced it. Because no Jew would ever say that name again. We'll read in the Old Testament that God pronounced his name to Moses. We've got an indication that Jesus pronounced the name. It's translated I am because that's what the name probably means or I will be. But when Jesus said before Abraham, I am, and the people pick up the rocks to stone him, they're stoning him because he said the name that nobody's allowed to say. It's blasphemy to say the name of God. So it's this name. So Solomon stands before the altar of the name that nobody can say. In the presence of all the assembly of Israel. He spreads out his hands towards heaven. He says, oh, name that nobody can say. I got to tell you. So first year, uh, we were uh, my first year Hebrew class, Theo Klein. It's my Hebrew teacher. And, and we were reading the Joseph story and, and reading and doing exercises and all. And there was this one gal who made it through a little bit of class, but she kind of dropped the class. Bless her heart. She, 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 she was more interested in other things in college than learning Hebrew. And so she didn't attend very much. And so one of the things Theo Klein told us, he had grown up in an Orthodox Jewish home in South Africa. He said, you do not ever say this name. When you come across these four letters and you're reading, don't try to read them in Hebrew. You just say Hashem, which is Hebrew for the name. Or you can say Adonai, which is Hebrew for my Lord or the Lord. But don't ever try to pronounce this, these letters. And she had missed that day of class. And then the next day we came into class and, and she gets assigned the reading topic. And he just warned us the day before, don't do it. And she's sitting there and she's reading along and she's, uh, and she's having trouble pronouncing it. He's breaking out in hives. He thinks lightning's about to strike. He's like, no, no, don't say that. She said, no, no, I can get it. I can get it. Yav. And he's, no, no, no. She said, yes, I, 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 I got this, Theo. Uh, uh, Professor Klein, uh, Yav. And, and he was just having a conniption. You don't say the name stood before the altar of Hashem, the name, in the presence of all the assembly. That's why good Jews today, a lot of good Jews, won't even write God. They'll take the vowel out. He spread out his hands towards heaven. He says, oh, name that won't be named, God of Israel. There's no God like you in heaven above, on earth beneath, keeping covenant, showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who've kept you with their, who have kept with your servant, David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth 
With your hand, you fulfilled it to this day. Now look. Uh Uh-oh. See, I shouldn't have said the... (laughs) Just joking. Um, 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And we don't have time because I'm running out. But if you go through what you'll see over and over and over again. Is this is a house that is called by God's name. You know, this is a house in verse 44, 844. He says, if your people go out to battle against their enemy... By whatever way you shall send them. And they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen. And the house that I have built for your name. This was all a recognition that God had ownership over his people. And that's what it was about. If we go back to the PowerPoint. This is the context where Jesus in Mark 14 says, I will destroy this temple. You want a sign? I'll destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. In other words, get upset if you're part of the temple structure because Jesus was in fact saying this whole idea that you are relating to God and you are his people and he owns you that's recognized by this physical temple, that whole thing is changing. In the three days Jesus is in the tomb and when Jesus is resurrected, it will not be that way again. Because God's ownership over his people is evidenced in the lives of his people. In the church. In in the church universal. Paul says to the Corinthians, don't you know that your body is the temple of God? Both individually, but Paul uses you plural because our collective body is. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't have a home. Does it mean that he dwells within us? Yes, it does. But it means more than that. And these are the points for home. Oh, there we go. Sorry. Here we go. I didn't have time for this. See, sorry. He'll change the customs Moses delivered, not just in that temple house, but immediately following this is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopians, a word for reference of where this gentleman came from, a pious gentleman who loves the Lord, who's been to Jerusalem to honor festivals and holidays. We're not told if he's pagan or not, but if he's going to Jerusalem, it sounds like he's Jewish or a Jewish convert. He's black-skinned. That's why he's an Ethiopian. That's one of the words that's used to describe him. And, And he's a eunuch. And he's not understanding the Isaiah passage. So Philip gets into the chariot with him in spite of Deuteronomy 23.1, which says, basically, don't hang around with eunuchs. Because things are different. And Jesus has changed things. And it's no longer, if you're a eunuch, you can't come into the house of the Lord. You can't come into the temple of the Lord like Deuteronomy 23.1 because God's rewritten all of that was he's put the temple inside us. And we are his people. 
So those are our key takeaways. Number one, God owns me. I am not my own. He doesn't own me the way uh, uh, slavery has such a, a putrid, horrible existence in, in the world today because of, of the way man has, has mutilated the way they treat other men and women. He owns me in the sense that I went to him and said, Lord, I am yours. Make me, mold me, do whatever you want to. I am yours. I don't want to live an existence isolated and independent of you. I want to rely upon you. You don't have to think of it as slave master. You can think of it as parent child. You can think of it any way you want to. The bottom line is, is I belong to the Lord. And I love that. That's not a bad thing. That's a really, really good thing. Think of it as joining the coolest country club in the world. No dues. No exclusivity. Except for the price already being paid by Jesus Christ. I'm in heaven's kingdom. I love that. Because this is the temple. God is tremendous. And we lose some of that awesomeness because we're able to say his name. See, God, sometimes I need him to be the unpronounceable God because that's what I need in my life. But honestly, sometimes I need him to be my father. Sometimes I need him to be Lord Jesus, my friend. And God sends us all of these different ways he relates to us. Just don't ever forget that one of the ways he relates to us is as the unpronounceable God. We don't ever figure him out. And this unpronounceable God is moving in big, bold ways in our world. Now, what does this mean for you and me? Last second. You have a chance to be in a relationship with God that transforms who you are and what you do with your life because this God is so tremendous. He will now take care of everything, infusing you so that you're able to do it as a human. He doesn't turn you into a puppet. But he empowers you. Because he's moving in big, bold ways. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for the blessing that you are to each of us. Thank you that you dwell in our midst, that we are your property. Father, we want to be yours. We want your protection. We want your love. We want your blessings. We want your encouragement. We want your support. We want your direction. We want your peace. We want to be on your side. We want to fight your battles by the power of your spirit. See your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. See your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See your name. The name we cannot pronounce. Try as we might. See your name glorified, made holy, hallowed be your name. All through Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we pray, amen. Amen.